Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will uphold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, And new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. And His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Ray and Carol Lehman reside on the east coast of the United States. One summer they loaded up their family in the van and they drove to the west coast. And if you've ever taken one of these cross-country road trips, you know it is a very, very long drive. It takes almost forever. And it gets even longer when there are kids in the car. Well, to break up the trip, Carol decided to have a family kindness day. Each family member's name was written on a piece of paper and placed in a hat. Then everyone drew out a name. The challenge was to be as kind as possible throughout the day to that person. And it was a great idea. In the car, at the pit stops, all throughout the day, everyone found a kind deed to do for the person to whom they had been assigned. Carol's idea went so well that the next day, her youngest son, Darrell, asked if they could do it again. This time, Darrell passed the hat and everyone picked out a name. Once again, the family went out of their way to pour out kindness and affection on their selection. Well, it took until around lunchtime to notice a peculiarity. Little Durrell was enjoying an unprecedented amount of attention and love and kindness. Well, after a hurried investigation, it was revealed that Durrell had written his name on all of the papers that he had placed in the hat. He was hoarding the family's affections. And yet it's understandable. We all crave kindness and love. You know, often we're reluctant to pass on a word of encouragement for fear of giving the other person the big head. We're afraid of letting our friend know that we appreciate them in some way. Afraid that they might, we might inflate their ego. Well, author Doug Fields, he proposes a litmus test to tell if a person really needs to be encouraged. He concludes... If a person is breathing, they need encouragement. 
Life can tear us down and rough us up. It punches us drunk and slaps us silly. The world we occupy is a discouraging place. Beatdowns occur daily. For some of you, 2014 was a tough year. Life took some unexpected turns, and you could use some encouraging. Today, I come to you with words of hope. Reminds me of Hall of Fame basketball coach John Wooden. Wooden led UCLA to 10 national titles, and he had a rule on his team. Whenever a player scored a basket, he was required to wink or nod or smile at the teammate who had passed him the ball. Well, once instructing the, while instructing the team about this rule, one of the new players, he asked, he said, but coach, what if the other player's not looking? Wooden replied, I guarantee he'll look. You see, the coach knew that we're all looking for affirmation. I've heard it said, man does not live by bread alone. He also needs some buttering up. And it's true. All human beings need daily doses of propping up. Several years ago now, my wonderful wife, she threw me a surprise birthday party. It was for the big 5-0. Kathy decorated the house with scores of colorful helium-filled balloons. They added to the festive mood. But afterwards, those same balloons were a source of sadness for me. For it didn't take long for those balloons to lose their helium. I mean like the very next day. That morning, after all the fun, all those beautiful balloons were nothing but pieces of plastic hanging from a thread. And as pretty as a plastic balloon is filled with helium, a balloon that's deflated looks even uglier. I'll never forget sitting alone in the living room the morning after the big party, thinking about those balloons. And I can remember asking God, Lord, are these balloons going to be a metaphor for my life? Is this a prophecy for my future? Will my 50s be like a soaring balloon? Or more like a shriveled up piece of plastic just trying to hang on? Well, in reality, I've been 50 for a while now and it's been a little bit of both. But I have drawn one conclusion. As a balloon needs helium, I need encouragement. You know, today doctors, they hasten the healing process by performing all kinds of complex, invasive surgeries. There's bypasses and ectomies and transplants. But when it comes to healing for the soul, a simple pat on the back is the best therapy. I've heard it said, a pat on the back, though only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. We all desperately need encouragement. And our Lord Jesus comes to us with healing and help and hope. Here in Isaiah chapter 42, we find another portrait of Jesus in the prophecy of Isaiah. In fact, this whole chapter describes the Messiah and the nature of His ministry. Let me just hit on a few of the highlights. Verse 1 says that God will put His Spirit upon Jesus. Verse 4, God declares of Jesus, He will not fail. Verse 6 calls Him a light to the Gentiles. Verse 7 predicts that Jesus will open blind eyes and bring out prisoners from the prison house. In verse 9 we're told that Jesus will do new things. I mean, in light of all that Isaiah 42 predicts of the Messiah, verse 10 is a command to all the nations, Sing to the Lord a new song. 
and His praise from the ends of the earth. But of all these pungent promises in Isaiah's prophecy, and Matthew, the gospel writer, he knew them well. There was one prediction that captured and that stirred Matthew's imagination more than all the others. It was verse 3 of Isaiah 42. For in his gospel, Matthew quotes of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, he quotes from Isaiah 42. In applies it to Jesus, he says this. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. If you're looking for encouragement and you've come to Jesus, my friend, you have come to the right place. For Jesus is all about encouraging, not extinguishing. To the bruised reed... He is a splint. And to the smoking flax, He is a flint. Our Lord Jesus is a splint and a flint. On the banks of the Jordan River, the reeds, they grow up high to the sky. These bulrushes, they rise upwards as much as 18 feet above the water level. The tip of the reed carries a white plume. Its base can be as thick as three inches in diameter. These reeds help erosion control there in the riverbed. But they also have other purposes as well. The lower portion was used to carve uh, walking sticks and canes. The thinner middle section was used to craft musical woodwinds like flutes. The slender upper portion of the reed was used to carve pens and writing tools. Reeds were almost never used as weapons. And do you know why? Because they lacked a necessary strength. You remember when Jesus spoke of the authority of John the Baptist, he asked rhetorically, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? I mean, unlike John, reeds were flimsy. In fact, a fragile reed swaying back and forth in the wind was a symbol of weakness. And a bruised reed, that was weaker still. Despite its intended use, a reed was useless if the stalk was ever crimped or bruised, it didn't even require a complete break. Just the slightest bend in the stalk was enough for it to get uprooted and tossed aside. Since reeds grew in clumps, no one would ever take the time or make the effort to nurture back to health a single crippled reed. I mean, it would be a waste. Just throw it away. Go back down to the bulrushes for another. There were plenty of other reeds to choose from. And the same was true of smoking flax. Flax was used in textiles. Various fabrics were made out of the stalks of the flax. Flax is a plant that grows two to four feet high, and it yields these beautiful blue plumes. Once harvested, the stalks are all laid out to dry. When the stalks become parched, they're easily shredded into individual threads. The most common use for flax in Jesus' day was as wicks for oil lamps. You see, dry flax fiber is extremely flammable. Place just a thread in a bowl of olive oil, hit it with a spark, and it easily ignites. It burns for a long, long time. The trick, though, was to keep the flax fiber dry. Moisten it just a little, and all it'll do is smolder and smoke without really catching fire. You see, a waterlogged wick was of no use. 
And just like a bruised reed was thrown away, so was a smoking flax. I mean, you could purchase dry wicks for a penny a pound. The time and the effort it would take to reignite a smoldering wick was a total waste. Oh, just grab another. Here's what I think. I believe that some of us in this room today, living here in the 21st century, can best be described by these 2,000-year-old oriental analogies. Jesus' words, His idioms are timeless. You might not have used these terms earlier today, but as you think about it now, this is how you feel inside. Man, I'm a bruised reed. You know, I think I'm a smoking flax. Like a broken reed, you've been damaged. You've been bent against your will. You've been wounded. Your once tall stalk now has a break. Your weakness is now weaker. You feel like the slightest breeze could blow you over. You know you stand no chance in a windstorm. You've assumed that you're no longer fit for the purposes God once intended. You feel like it's over for you. It would be easier for God just to go back down to the riverbank and start over with another reed. And some of you feel like a smoldering flax. Man, I'm exhausted. Your enthusiasm, your passion for life, maybe even for marriage, has been doused by a million drops of disappointment. Hope for the future, your willingness to love, has been nearly extinguished. If I looked into the furnace of your heart this morning, I would find a coldness. I would see a few dying embers of a once roaring fire. And you thought, why would God waste His time trying to rekindle wet wood? You've assumed God prefers fresh flax. But here's what we don't realize. Jesus doesn't think the way we think. He's not so utilitarian. When Jesus builds something, He prefers to start with broken reeds. When He starts a fire, He likes to use smoldering flax. Jesus hasn't given up on you. Jesus is willing to invest in the bruised reed and in the smoking flax. He refuses to write them off or abandon either. He cares deeply for them both. Time used, effort spent, nurturing and healing provided is never a waste. Listen to me carefully. There are no throwaway people in the eyes of our Lord Jesus. Once I saw a movie about a long shot racehorse, and there's a scene in the movie where the old horse trainer, he saves an injured thoroughbred from a bullet in the head. Well, later he's asked why. He replies, you don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a little. Please hear that again. You don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a little. This is what our text is saying to us about Jesus. Certainly, when God created mankind, He made us to be far different than we turned out to be. I mean, when He scooped out of the ground that handful of dust to make the first man, He had perfection in mind. But then sin entered, and life got hard, and we got hurt, and people got banged up a lot. But Jesus doesn't scrap the damaged goods. He doesn't haul us off to the landfill. It would be easier for Jesus to toss aside the bruised reed and the smoking flax. But that is not in His nature. 
That is not how Jesus treats people. Hey, as far as Jesus is concerned, there are no disposable people. Did you know Jesus is a huge recycler? He redeems and restores and reconciles and revives. These are all Bible words. He still has plans for the bruised reed and for the smoking flax. And the Gospels are full of such examples. Think of the woman taken in adultery. I mean, this gal had been in more laps than a napkin. In fact, she was being exploited not only by the man she slept with, but by the pharisaical pimps who had arranged the tryst to try to trap Jesus. She was just a pawn and a move to checkmate Jesus. Talk about a bruised reed. Mistreated. And yet Jesus, the only person in the crowd that day qualified to cast a stone, didn't. There was no malice in His voice or in His words. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How many times have we replayed those words in our own minds when we were guilty? Let's not forget them when the rocks are in our hands. Hey, He never broke a bruised reed. Never did. Think of Zacchaeus, the short guy with a long list of sins. He was an enemy collaborator, a swindler to boot. He sold out his countrymen to strong arm for Rome. And Jesus spotted little Zac up in a tree. What a fitting place for him to be. In a proverbial sense, Zacchaeus lived his whole life out on a limb. But Jesus called him by name, invited himself over to Zac's house for dinner, Zacchaeus had burned his bridges. He'd given up hope. He was a smoking flax if there ever was one. But the favor he felt from Jesus relit a spark in his cold soul. The compassion of Jesus helped this little man stand tall again. Restitution now had a reason. Think of the Gadarean demoniac. When Jesus cast out the demons inside him, Oh, they were vicious demons. They immediately committed suicide. If you remember the story. Imagine what those demons had been doing to him. Or the sinful woman at Simon's house who bathed the Lord's feet with tears and with perfume. Jesus said she had a big love because he had forgiven her a big debt. Or Peter's mother-in-law racked with a fever. Or the lame man who was lured through the roof. Or Mary from Magdala who had boarded seven demons for a time. Or the hemorrhaging woman who grabbed his robe. Or blind Bartimaeus who when told to keep silent kept on asking. Good for him. Or any one of the infectious lepers who cried out to be cleansed. Or even Martha of Bethany who like so many of us was busy serving the Lord, tired from serving the Lord. I mean, these were all bruised people who had smoldering hearts. And can you name one of them that Jesus turned away? Can you name one of these crippled, choking souls that He refused to help? No, you can't. Jesus never turned down a bruised reed or a smoking flax. And think of Peter. <laughs> Perhaps the prime example of a bruised reed and a smoking flax. This man's faith was awfully flimsy. Even after boasting of his loyalty, 
Three times Peter denied his Lord in his most critical hour. Peter proved chicken before the rooster crowed. Afterwards, he was so discouraged he went fishing. He figured he was wasn't cut out for this apostlehood. Besides, Jesus wouldn't use him now anyway, not after his colossal failure. So Peter went back to what he knew. He figured he could fish. But by the lake, on the beach, the risen Lord Jesus renewed his calling to a discouraged Peter. Jesus told him, feed my sheep. These are just a few of the examples of God's grace in action. Realize your failure, our failure, is no greater than Peter's failure. But Jesus didn't forsake Peter, and he sure is not going to forsake you. Jesus doesn't bail on failed followers, and neither should we. His mercy endures forever. That's why I love Psalm 136. You should read it when you get home. 26 times in 26 couplets, the psalmist repeats the phrase, His mercy endures forever. It's as if he's trying to ram it in our heads, get it in our hearts. Never give up on Jesus, friends, for He sure hasn't given up on you. Charles Spurgeon once commented on our text. He said, The feeblest are not disdained by Jesus. He is patient with those who are unlovely in His eyes. Jesus longs to bind up the broken reed and fan the smoking flax into flaming life. Oh, that poor sinners would remember this and trust in Him. Okay, poor sinner. Are you ready to trust in Jesus? Jesus is a splint to the bruised reed. Ever walk through a vegetable garden and see the stalks of tomato plants all tied to their wooden stakes. On their own, those stalks aren't strong enough to keep the ripening tomatoes from dragging the ground. They need some strength. They need some support. And likewise, a bent person, a person who's been nicked or scarred, totters under their own weight. But Jesus is a splint. He wraps His arms around you at the very point of your break. The strength of Jesus allows you to heal. Perhaps your injury is a physical one, or emotional, or relational, or maybe spiritual. It doesn't matter. Jesus promises to be your splint until you grow strong again. Oh, you've been betrayed by a friend. Now it's difficult for you to trust another person. You've loved someone and were rejected and now you're reluctant to ever love again. Maybe your marriage is wounded. It's creaking and wobbling even as I speak. Maybe you failed at a job and it shattered your confidence and now you're doubting your skills. You're a bruised reed. But realize this. Jesus wants to give Himself to you. What greater gift could He give? You see, the strategy you hear in the business world these days is this. Play to your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. Oh, but Jesus has a different way. He wants you to rely on Him at the very point of your weakness. He wants you to let Him show Himself strong even in your weakness. Jesus props up and builds up flimsy folks until they grow sturdy again. Hey, remember the story of Moses when Israel fought with the Amalekites? Oh, when Moses held up his shepherd's staff, Israel triumphed. But when his arms grew weary, when they started to sag, the enemy got the upper hand. And that's when Moses' two assistants spotted the problem. 
They came alongside him to hold up Moses' arms. And with their help, Israel won a great victory. And this is what Jesus does for us. When we grow weary, when we start to sag and break and can't find the strength to carry on, He doesn't just sit back and watch the enemy get the upper hand. His Spirit surrounds us and supports us and strengthens us. Sometimes He even sends a few friends to help hold up our arms. He does whatever it takes. In the words of our text, He sends forth justice to victory. Oh, Jesus is a splint to the bruised reed. And make no mistake about it, He is a flint to the smoking flax. Bear's Grylls was the star of Man vs. Wild. I know this because it was my boy's favorite show. And then Bears got canceled, I guess, and he ended up with a new survival show called Get Out Alive. And I know this because it's been my wife, one of my wife's favorite shows. And so I've watched a lot about a lot of Bears Grills. And one thing I've learned from this guy that I've learned about surviving in the wild is that you need flint. With a little small piece of flint, you can kindle fire. And with fire, you can cook food. And you can boil water. And you can stay warm. And you can dry clothes. All of life is easier with fire. Every survivalist is excited to have fire. And the same is true spiritually. A life or a ministry, or a marriage without spiritual fire. The fires of enthusiasm and joy and motivation and love and commitment and passion and hope. A life without those things can be very, very difficult. To survive in this wild world, you need fire. Imagine two different rooms on a cold, frozen night. The first room, it has a roaring fire in the fireplace. The family's all gathered around the hearth. Everyone is enjoying the smells and the light and the warmth of the fire. But now picture in your mind a second room. On this chilly night, the fireplace is empty. Folks walk through this room, but it's not a living room. Far from it. No one lives in this room. There's no warmth or light to attract people to stay because there's no fire. And what I've described are not just two rooms, but two lives. One life contains the flame of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of this person. People are attracted to the love and warmth that they sense. But the other life is cold and empty and lonely. There's no life in this room because there's no fire. There's nothing that would attract other people to come and stay here. See, our tendency is to walk off from the room that's cold and empty. Why would anyone want to hang out there? But Jesus thinks differently. He refuses to leave such a life. For He wants to build a fire. He has flint. Jesus is the spark that can get the fires of enthusiasm and passion burning again. You know, at times it's hard to start a fire. I mean, you have to prime it and show some patience and be persistent at it. Those are all traits that Jesus is good at. He is an expert at rekindling fire. And not only can Jesus relight a fire in your heart, He can do the same in your marriage or with a friendship or for a confidence. Jesus will take smoldering kindling, 
just a flicker of a flame and he'll fan it back to a full-blown blaze. Jesus can reignite a calling that had nearly died out. He can revive the dream or the vision that had almost faded. He can reestablish a respect that has been smothered by failure. Jesus specializes in rekindling burned out people. Hey, recall what John the Baptist declared of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is the Lord of the spark. He fires up new life. Understand the spiritual warfare that surrounds this ministry of Jesus. Our Lord is a splint and a flint. Whereas our enemy is a harsh wind and a wet blanket. I mean, Satan's nature is just the opposite of Jesus. Hey, let me warn you about Satan. Satan has the killer instinct. Do you understand what I mean when I use this term, the killer instinct? I mean, such a person doesn't just want to beat their opponent, they want to punish him. When he falls down, the goal is to finish him off. A football player with the killer instinct doesn't just tackle the quarterback, he tries to disable him and put him out of the game. And Satan has this killer instinct. Satan doesn't just bend the reed or break its skin. He's the fierce wind that wants to blow in and tear it in two. Satan doesn't just let the fire die down. He's the wet blanket. He's the bucket of water that snuffs out the coals. And if it weren't for Jesus, Satan would work his cruelty on us. There would be no hope for recovery. Our first failure would be fatal. But Jesus keeps hope alive. Do you ever suffer from inexplicable moodiness? I mean, you're soaring one day, and the next day you're depressed and you don't know why. This has only happened to me. I never make major decisions on Monday. Monday's a rough day for me. I mean, a lot of factors, a lot of things factor into this kind of turbulence. But have you ever considered that a main cause for this could be spiritual? That when the highs and lows that sweep over us, that wave of encouragement followed by a crashing wave of despair, has it ever dawned on you that this could be the direct result of spiritual warfare? When a bout with the blues strikes at a strange time and for no apparent reason, there may actually be a spiritual battle raging to sink your faith. You see, discouragement isn't always traceable to discernible, obvious causes. The enemy of our soul loves to try to ambush our feelings. And likewise, encouragement can rise up and roll over us in the same sort of mysterious manner. Not long ago, my sons and I, we burned some debris down in the meadow below our house. We had a huge bonfire. It was cool. If you like burning stuff. Late in the afternoon, I, I, was, I was afraid. I mean, this thing's getting out of control. And so I, I, I doused it with water and I put out the big blaze. And it was two full days later, two days, mind you, I noticed smoke rising up from the meadow. I couldn't believe it, but that fire still had life. The wind had kicked up. It had stirred up a spark. It had reignited the smoldering ashes. And this is what Jesus does in a believing heart. Even when there's no visible reason to be optimistic. 
Even when a positive outlook isn't tied to anything tangible. Even when you've seen it all burn out in front of you before your very eyes. Suddenly, hope can still swoop in. The Holy Spirit blows in like a rushing mighty wind. He gets dispatched from the throne of grace. And the Spirit of Jesus comes to us like a splint and like a flint. You see, the starting point for you and I comes at the end of the text here in Matthew chapter 12. The last line that we read, Isaiah said, In His name Gentiles will trust. And here's what I've got to ask you today. Do you trust in Jesus? Do you really trust Him? Not just in the macro sense, but in the micro sense. You know, years ago, many years ago, I was a student down at Georgia State in pursuit of my business degree. And I had to take two courses in economics, macroeconomics and microeconomics. Macro is the big picture. It involves market trends and government regulations and the health of the economy and how it all interacts. Whereas micro is more specific. It deals with the choices individual companies make. And let me suggest that there is such a thing as macro and micro faith. Macro faith looks at universal issues. Whereas micro faith examines matters specific to me. You see, macro faith embraces overarching truths. There is a God. His Son is Jesus. He died to save me. He's alive today. The Bible is God's Word. This is macro faith. The big picture issues. But there is also micro faith. And this is the faith that I exhibit in the nitty gritty of my life. Do I let Jesus influence my thoughts as I go through the day? Do I obey Him in my finances? Do I lean on Him for my emotional needs? Do I trust Him in the day-to-day? You see, both macro and micro faith are important. You could say it like this. My eternal salvation depends on macro faith, while my internal salvation depends on micro faith. A bruised reed and a smoking flax needs a specific, targeted faith. We need to trust Jesus Day by day. Oh, I'm sure you have macro faith. But what about the micro? Do you trust Jesus at the exact point of your break? Right where the mending and healing needs to occur? Is that where you trust Him? At the very moment when the fire is about to smother and die out, that's when your faith needs to kick in and trust Him to relight the flame. 2,000 years ago, a man was rejected. And beaten, crucified, and buried. And yet three days later, he rose from the dead, never to die again. You believe that? I know you do. But the empty tomb is proof of so much more. Right now, your back is against the wall. You face what seems to be insurmountable problems. You're looking for reasons to hope, but you're not finding many. That's why you need to look again to that empty tomb. Jesus, too, was a damaged reed. He became cold embers for us. Are you telling me your problems are greater than the hardships that Jesus faced? Certainly not. Yet in the end, our Lord triumphed 
over our arch enemies, both sin and death. And now with that victory under his belt, nothing is impossible for Jesus. And Jesus will work miracles in us if we just trust him. Understand, your discouragement this morning, it isn't really a big deal. In the grand scheme, it's pretty tiny. It's about the size of a little coin. In contrast, Jesus is larger than the sun. He shines brighter. The warmth He generates is more powerful. You see, here's what can happen. If I hold that little coin up close to my eyeball, it can block out the sun. To me, at that moment, the coin becomes larger than the sun itself. If I allow it, a tiny coin can block out the enormous sun. And in the same way, a small but well-placed speck of discouragement can devastate our faith. If we're going to walk in victory, we can't allow discouragement to ever get between our eyes and God's Son. Once a dad and his little boy, they were planning a fishing trip for weeks. This was all that his son could think about and talk about was this fishing trip where they were planning to leave the very next day excitement had been building in this little boy the night before the big trip dad was tucking his son into bed when the little guy he looked up at his father and he said to him daddy thank you for tomorrow and this is what faith says lord thank you for tomorrow for jesus rose from the dead to be there in your tomorrow Even when your strength fails, even when your passion fades, Jesus promises to be there in your tomorrow. A bruised reed, He will not break. A smoking flax, He will not quench. This is how Jesus treats us. And this is how He wants us to treat others. All that's left is for us to trust in Him.